Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, good morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. Acts 20, we are looking at here today. I'm going to look at the whole chapter, so we are speeding up a little bit here. We're going to pick up the pace as we move on. I, my plan is to get us through Acts before our family departs. So we're going to look at the entire chapter. There'll be a, we're going to hit the high points as we go and, uh, and hopefully not make these sermons too long. Um, as we'll see today, preaching a long sermon could be very dangerous. As we'll get into this text, we'll find out why. Okay, appreciate the laughter. <laughs> so, but this morning we're looking here at Acts 20, and, uh, and this in many ways is, is a transitional chapter of Paul finishing up his third missionary journey, getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And uh, in many ways, as, you read, as we read through the text, we'll see it. There's just a lot of details thrown at you pretty quickly. And, uh, and yet, it's a really important chapter, I believe, because we see something here, at least I do, when I look at Paul, and it's something that I'm really amazed by when I consider the Apostle Paul, and it's the fact that he was very passionate and committed to seeing the gospel go to the unreached, to see the gospel go to the furthest edges and to press out aggressively, and, and there was that pioneering spirit to him to just take this message out, but there's another side to Paul. And then is the understanding that, that, that as churches are being formed, he wants them to become established so they would partner in that mission and stay faithful as he would keep going. He, he didn't see it as like kind of just clicking off churches or clicking off regions and moving on to the next one. I, I think he saw it as collecting partners along the way, people that would support, people that would be part of this, that they would, that they would be defined by what God's doing in this world. And what I see in Paul is, is this desire to not only press to the edges, but to make sure that the churches that, that are left behind are established and are strong and are focused and are doing what a church is supposed to be doing. And Acts chapter 20 is one of those chapters where we see this in Paul. We see him establishing the churches. We see him building them up, encouraging them, making sure that they have the right focus. And, and even though... Luke is writing this chapter. He's writing it from his perspective, actually. He is, uh, and he's hitting things quickly. There are little triggers in here that give us insight into what an established church would look like. I think it's a timely passage for us. We have transition ahead of us as a church. Things are changing. There's all kinds of things going on and, 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 and stuff happening. And every once in a while... It's good to kind of take a step back and say, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? How is ministry supposed to be looking? What are the priorities and the focus that, that, that should govern the church? And actually, Acts 20 is one of those chapters that, that gives us insight. It gives insight to shepherds as to how they should be shepherding. It gives insight to you as a church, as a Christians. It gives insight to you as Christians as to how you should be responding and thinking about your Christian walk, which we'll see in here. And it gives us insight as a collective body as to what our focus should be. So I'm excited for us to go through this chapter here because I think it's going to be very helpful for us 
to get a perspective on the church, and especially as we go through this self-study over the next year, just kind of reevaluating our priorities and reevaluating who we are as a church body, I think this chapter could be one that could help speak into that process. And so, so pay special attention, even though we're going to be moving through at a pretty good clip, because I think it's very helpful. So we're going to begin here. You see in your outline, we're going to begin by looking at, at Paul establishing the church. This is a real big priority to Paul, that he would actually establish the church. And there are four observations that I've made as I went through these first 16 verses of Acts 20. Four observations, and I want to give you those observations so you can you can kind of maybe focus on a couple of key things. Because like I said, Luke's writing kind of fast. He's just throwing out details. And uh, sometimes it's easy to get confused in the details. So let's begin. Let's look at the first three verses here of Acts 20. And then and, and, and then the thing I want us to focus on is what I want to simply call the mission of Paul. What I mean by the mission is not his mission to go into the unreached, but I want you to see his mission in establishing a church. It's here, it's kind of hidden in here, but I, I want to show it to you here. And, and this, I think, is really important. Let's look here at verse 1. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, you read those three verses, and you think that's just a little travelogue, right? There's Paul. Right? He's in Ephesus. The uproar has ceased. We looked at that uproar. He preached. He went after the idols. The people got mad, and all this crazy stuff happened, and everything calmed down. And now that the church has weathered the storm, he says, hey, uh, I'm going to go to Macedonia. I'm going to make my way from Turkey over to Europe. And so he goes over to Europe. He's in Greece. He's about ready to get on a boat. It's revealed that there's people who are trying to kill him, so he doesn't get on the boat, and he takes another trip, and he just starts cruising around Europe, staying away from these people who are trying to kill him. That's what the first three verses say. And you say, well, okay, Steve, if that's really what he's saying, where do you get this idea of the mission of establishing? What, what does that mean there? I want you to notice something. He says um, in verse 2 that when he'd gone through the regions, he'd given them much encouragement. Some translations have much exhortation. They use the word exhortation. It's really in that word encouragement that we get an understanding of what Paul did when he went back and ministered to his churches. The word encouragement is actually a unique word. I'm going to give you the word because you maybe have heard of this word in relation to the Holy Spirit. It's the word paraclete. You might have heard that word in reference to the Holy Spirit. A paraclete. Somebody that comes alongside you and nudges you. That's what a paraclete means. It comes alongside, it nudges you. Now, I want you to understand this word. When you see the word encouragement, especially the way the ESV has it, I don't want you to think that Paul just kind of went around people and was like, like one of those encouraging people. I'm like, man, you look great today. You know, wow, you rock today. Way to go, A number one, right? He wasn't that kind of guy, okay? It wasn't just like happy guy. This word is a specific word. That's why some translations use the word exhortation. Best way to think about it is this way. Let's say your child says that they want to learn ballet. And you say, okay, I'm going to teach, uh, my kid wants to learn ballet. I'm going to make sure they learn ballet. And so you go and you find, you hear about the best ballet teacher in the world. And this ballet teacher is charging 
oodles of dollars, but you say it's worth it. I want my kid to learn ballet. And so you bring him into ballet, you drop him off with a huge check, you know, and the second mortgage on your house to pay for it, the whole deal. And then you come back after the first day, and there's your child sitting in a circle playing a clarinet. They're just squeaking away on a clarinet. You'd be like, why are you playing a clarinet? And let's say the ballet teacher says, well, I thought it would be fun to teach him the clarinet today. You'd be like, hey, I'm paying you like a lot of money to teach him ballet. Why well, I just felt like teaching him clarinet. You would pull him from that, right? You take him the next week, there they are, they're sitting around, they're playing a ukulele the next week. You'd be like, what are you doing? I want to teach clarinet. Or I mean, I don't, I don't want you to teach clarinet or ukulele, teach ballet. Why are you mad? Why are you getting upset with this teacher? You're getting upset with the teacher because you want the teacher to come alongside your child to teach them how to put their legs and do all the things and all the French words that are involved with ballet. You want them to know all that. It is French, right? Yes. yes. Okay. My daughter took ballet, right? French words. They sound French to me. <laughs> and all this stuff, you want them to learn all of that. And when they're making a mistake, you want them to correct them, right? If your child's getting out there looking like a piece of plywood up on the stage, and you say, hey, my child looks like a piece of plywood up here. Well, I just don't want to hurt their feelings. No, hurt their feelings. I'm giving you a lot of money to teach them how to do ballet, not to look like plywood. Right? That's what I want. Okay, now, big illustration for a simple point. A paraclete comes alongside and pushes you in a direction, corrects you, aligns you with something. Paul goes through the church, and he's like a coach. He's like a teacher, an instructor. He's coming alongside. He's correcting. He's exhorting. He's pushing. It's why the word paraclete is there. Very specific word. The word is referenced in the Holy Spirit most of the time in the Bible. That he comes along and he convicts you. He pushes you towards faith in God. He pushes you. Talking about the Spirit. Pushes you towards repentance. Pushes you towards righteousness. Paul, when he went to the church, he didn't see the church his role as the church is just to kind of gather a bunch of people to follow him. He saw his role to come alongside and drive people, push people, exhort people to follow Jesus. If you read through his letters, you see how he did it. He would try to align people towards the mission of the kingdom. He would try to align people towards loving each other. He would try to align people towards walking faithfully, exposing deeds of darkness. He would try to align people to, to recognize that we're here to live for the glory of God. He had no problem correcting people. He had no problem saying, hey, that, you're going in a bad direction there. That's an idol, and you need to let go of that idol. That's all wrapped up in what he was doing. A word we would use for this today would be the word discipleship. Paul would go through to make disciples. People who would follow Jesus. That was his mission as he would establish the church. If you think about it, church, the point of our existence and the point of coming here, right? The point of KBC is not to be the biggest church in DeKalb County. Hopefully, the point of KBC is to see disciples made who follow Jesus, right? That should be our focus. Not how do we get more people in the doors as much as it is how do we get you following Christ and being faithful to his mission. That's the focal point. That's what Paul did. It's all wrapped up in that word encouragement. Now, we're going to move on here to our next observation. 
So Paul has done this in Ephesus. He leaves. He goes to Europe. He's doing this in Greece. He's about ready to leave Greece, get on a boat. He finds out that somebody is trying to kill him. So he gets off. He goes on another journey. Now look, we're going to look at our next observation. Our next observation as we move from the mission is to the, what I want to call the men. There's men with Paul here. Okay? And let's look here at verse 4. It says, Sobtar, the Berean, son of Phareus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Now all of a sudden we got this list of guys. I think they all got on the boat and Paul didn't, is basically the point. Now you say, now what are these guys doing here? So out of the blue comes this list of men. Well, there's a couple things you need to know that will help you understand this passage. First of all, Luke is just throwing out details. And if you don't know historically what's going on, this will not make sense. And this is where the Bible helps interpret the Bible. You don't have to turn there, but if you were to read the whole book of 2 Corinthians, the whole book of 2 Corinthians will give you insight into Acts chapter 20. That book was written the same time this was going on. And so many of the things that are talked about in 2 Corinthians are actually referenced here. So just to help you kind of put the, the, the Bible together, Acts 20, 2 Corinthians, boom, they'll help you. One of the things you learn in 2 Corinthians, especially chapter 8 and chapter 9, is that there was a famine in Jerusalem. Bad famine. And the people around that were selling food to the people in Jerusalem were inflating the prices of the food. That's a little extra biblical history there. That's not in 2 Corinthians. They were inflating the prices. And the people in Jerusalem were just struggling to survive. Paul went on a journey. As he, as he was going through this trip to Macedonia, he decided that he was going to collect money from the Gentile churches. And he was going to bring it back to Jerusalem. And so he's on this, like, focus. i got to get back to Jerusalem. I want to get back there. And you'll see this in the text. i got to get back to Jerusalem. got to get back there. But he's collecting money. And as he's collecting money, the men that he has been discipling have come alongside him. And we learn in 2 Corinthians for a couple of reasons. Number one, because these are godly men. We'll talk about this in a second here. But number two, they're coming alongside for integrity purposes. So that it doesn't look like Paul's pocketing large sums of money from people and just walking away. So every church that's giving money is also given one of the guys. So the guys are going with them. Okay, so that's what's going on here. These are the guys. These are the churches that have contributed. They contributed not only money, but they also contributed the men. Now, the key that I want to point out to you are these men. And one of the points I want, I want to make here that just comes up, and it, it's reflected in Paul's writings in other places, is that when Paul would go on a, uh, you know, when Paul started his mission team, I should say, or his missionary work, he's got just a couple guys with him, but everywhere he went, he was looking for the next generation of leaders and shepherds. So he's going along the way collecting faithful men. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, I want you to do what I did. I want you to find faithful men who have the capacity to teach and have the capacity to give it away to others. And I want you to give what I gave to you to them so that they would do this. And one of the observations I want to make here 
is that in every city that Paul ministered, there was a guy. There was a faithful minister. These guys' names show up in other places in the Bible. Just do a Google search on them and you'll see. They're, they're all over. Because these are the guys, not just that, 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 that came with the money, these are the men that Paul invested his life into because he recognized something. That one of the key components of the future of the church is the investment into the next generation. Faithful people who can teach, who can give it away to others. Faithful to Christ, faithful to his church, faithful to the mission. Who have the capacity to communicate, the capacity to to shepherd with words, and who have the capacity to pass it on to others. Essential part of his mission and ministry, and in my opinion, should be the central part of the church. It should always be. It shouldn't just be, well, our pastor likes to do training, or our pastor always wanted to run a seminary, and we get one of those guys in here. No, it's part of the essential nature of the church. Essential nature. And I would suggest more essential than a lot of the other things that we might put on we have to have list. Because it's the way it's to pass on. It ensures movement. It ensures that the church is able to keep going. You don't want to be one and done, right? You don't want, we don't want to plant this church in 1993 and then in, in uh, you know, the next 20 years we're all sitting around here old going, man, we had that heyday in the early 20th, 21st century. Remember how great that was? We want to keep it going. Keep passing it on. As you pass it on, more movement goes. Right? It's exciting to think about that. It's exciting to think about that that's happened in this church. It's exciting to think that it should continue on. It should be a priority. Right? It should be one of those things that never gets lost in all of the transitions that go on here. But let's keep moving. All right? We've got a whole chapter to get through. So we, we, we've seen the mission. Right? He's coming along. He's exhorting. He's, he's discipling people, pushing them towards faith in Christ. We've seen these men that have emerged, that, that are the fruit of Paul's ministry, now let's look at what I want to simply call the message. All right, the message. Big chunk of scripture here. Look at verse 6 with me. I'm going to read a big chunk here. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked, still longer, right? We should emphasize that, right? Longer, he keeps going. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But when Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while. He still kept going until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive. And there was no little comfort. I like it the way Luke writes it. No little comfort, right? Meaning they were really pumped, right? He's just so kind of cool about it, right? Okay, interesting story. It's now the first day of the week. Right? He's, he's traveling, he gets to Philippi, or they set away from Philippi, they get to Troas. He's there for a week. On the first day of the week, they always gathered. The church we see in Acts gathered on Sundays, the day the Lord raised, was, was raised from the dead. They would have, their church service was, you know, when they weren't 
in Jewish context, most of the Gentile context, the church services occurred in homes. Jewish context, they occurred in the synagogues. But here they're gathering in homes, and the way a church service went is they had a meal together. They kept a little bread and a little wine. And then after the meal, they would take the Lord's table with the leftover bread and wine. And then somebody would talk. And in this case, Paul talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And he wouldn't stop talking. The picture you have to get, Luke is very, I think, picturesque. You're in an upper room. It's now midnight. Paul's probably been talking four and a half, maybe five hours. Kids sitting by the window. Lights are flickering. You know, he's doing the head bob thing. Which, by the way, a little, I take a little comfort. Right? If somebody could sleep in one of Paul's sermons, I'll just take a nap while I'm preaching then. Right? You know? But be warned. Right? Because I think the point of this whole lesson is don't fall asleep in church, kids. You could die. No. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. No. <laughs> it's pretty intense, isn't it? Kid falls out a window, a three-story window. They run up. They think he's dead. He is dead. I think he's dead. There's a lot of debate as to whether or not he's dead, but they basically look at him. He's not breathing. I don't know if they're checking for pulses back then or not, but nothing's going on. Paul comes up and says, he's alive. Picks him up in his arms. Boom. I think the guy gets healed at that moment. And the reason why I think he's healed is because they just go back to eating and preaching again. It's not like he's just passed out on the ground. I think they would have tended to him if that were the case. But, but, but he's not, and he's walking now. Paul says, all right, there, he's healed. Let's go back. Let's, let's eat so I can talk some more. 12, 15 hours later, he's done. Now you think, what in the world is Paul doing? I think there's a couple things we could see here. Let's kind of put these two, two, of, two accounts together. First of all, remember Paul's mission. He's not just preaching abstract doctrines to him. We know what he's doing. Right? Paul isn't just layering information on them. Paul's, the word that's used whenever Paul would work in, work in the church is this word paraclete. He would come alongside and he would help you try to understand these truths so that you could grow in them. That you would, that you would grow in them. Now Paul knows one thing we're going to see here in a minute. Paul knows he's going to die. That God has a really rough plan in store for him. So this is the last time he's going to see this church and he wants to make sure they know everything. He leaves nothing unsaid. And what he's telling them is so powerful, it has the capacity to give life to people. What a great illustration than to have a kid fall asleep in church and die just to be raised from the dead, right? A great illustration. This is how powerful this truth is. This is how important this truth is. This not only can give spiritual life, it is so powerful that even if someone dies in our midst, we can just, read, God can bring them back to life. Guys, this is the truth. You can imagine Paul bouncing off that moment after Eutychus falls out the window and all the horror and terror of that. You can imagine Paul getting everybody for breakfast, sitting around the breakfast table saying, all right, guys, we're going to eat again. And I want to just tell you this. What would happen here is that's the power of God. Christ froze from the dead. There's life in what he has to say. Don't give up on this. Don't lose hope. No matter how dark it gets, you've got power in the gospel. Right? You could see him pounding the table, letting these people know this because he knows he's going to leave. And he knows trials are going to come. And he wants them aligned with this. And this was so important to Paul, it was worth 
a 12-hour sermon. It was worth it. That's how powerful it is. What I love about Paul is that he's all about the people becoming aligned to Christ. It's not about trying to turn the people into consumers. It's about turning them into disciples. Right? That's what this is about. Now, we come to the last observation, the last M, right? We've seen his mission. We've seen the man. We've seen his message. Now, the last M, the movement. There's a movement going on here. Look at verse 13. But Paul, going on ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos. I'm sorry, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he had met us at Asos, we took him on board, and we went to Midianine. And sailing from there, we came to the following day to Chios. The next day, we touched in Samos. And the day after, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, I guarantee none of you are memorizing that passage for your life devotions, right? <laughs> it's like you don't have that on your windowsill at home going, but it just brings me so much comfort when I'm doing the dishes, right? But yet, what is here is Paul is in, mo- is in motion. His end game, as we know from 2 Corinthians, is to get to Jerusalem because he has this money. And why is this important to him? Because okay, he's hastening to get there. In fact, he's hastening so bad as he's coming back from Europe, he doesn't want to pass through Ephesus because he knows it'll slow him down. So basically, he's taken a little bit of the long way around because he doesn't want to go through Ephesus because he knows once he's there, the people will want to see him and want to talk with him. And he doesn't want to do that. He wants to get to Jerusalem. Why? This movement is important. There's two things going on here. Paul is obviously a man who wants to see the gospel go forth into the nations, but he wants to see it go forth in the right way, and the, what he's trying to build here is something very simple. The church in, in, uh, in, in Jerusalem is primarily a Jewish church, and they're struggling with the Gentiles being saved. They're struggling with it. It's an issue for them. Gospel comes to the Jews first. The first church is formed in the Jewish context. Then it goes out to the Gentile world. Gentiles are getting saved by grace. It's freaking out the Jews because these Gentiles don't have the same pedigree as the Jews and have a lot of rough edges. And so the Jews want to see them as kind of second class, as you know, the mission field, but not mission partners. Paul is really intent on seeing a mission partnership form. That the mission has to occur within the context of partnerships. It can't occur with a Jewish church saying, well, why don't we just have a Jewish church over here? You Gentiles can do your thing, and we'll just kind of segregate these things out, right? You can have those kind of wacky liberal Gentile Christians over there and us conservative Jews over here, and we don't want to work and partner with them. And Paul is trying to force a partnership because the gospel can't go out onto the edges in a divided church. So he has this money and he's going to bring it back and he's got a bunch of Gentiles that are going to come with him and they're going to deliver this money to the Jews and they're going to say, hey, you know what? You sent missionaries to these people and now they're sending ministry back to you and now we're going to be partners because this is how the gospel has to go out. This is what's going to get Paul in trouble, by the way, when these Gentiles show up with him. It's not going to be pretty, as we'll see. But here's the point. 
Paul saw one church, and the movement of the kingdom comes from one church. A unified church, not a church that is looking back and saying, we're not working there, we're not doing that, we're just going to do our thing, and they're going to do their thing. Paul is cramming these two pieces together with boldness. The unity of the church is just as much of an issue for Paul as the mission of the church. And the church can't move without it. So there's the movement. Now, that's Paul as he is establishing this church. Now we're going to see Paul encouraging the church. We're going to shift to our second point. And what he's going to do is he's going to focus specifically in verse 17 on the elders of Ephesus. Now it zeroes in. And he's going to talk to these elders. And he's going to tell these elders, hey guys, there are some things you need to know. And there are, there are basically five things that he tells them in this text. As he's reflecting on his ministry there and what he wants for them, there are five things, uh, five kind of frameworks for ministry. And, and I'm framing them all in the negative. They're all negative framings. But as he's defining a ministry, he defines it in five ways. And I'm framing it with five negatives. The first negative that he frames with here is a ministry with no fear. All right, it's a no fear ministry. Look at verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Right? He needs to talk to them. And this is going to be a sad moment, by the way, a little side note, because Paul, there's going to be a lot of tears at the end, and it's not because Paul's leaving, but because, because Paul knows he's going to die, and they know he's going to die. Right? I mean, he's heading off going, hey, guys, by the way, God tells me this is pretty much going to kill me, and they're going to be pretty sad at the end of this thing because he's, they know he's going to die. Right? This, this is a pretty intense moment. So he sends for these guys, verse 18, and when they had came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I call that a description of a ministry with no fear. And here's the reason why. Paul basically tells them several things here in that passage. He says, first of all, I want you to know how consistent I was. That, 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 that from the first day that I arrived to the last day that I arrived, I continued to proclaim the message. Even though as I kept teaching, the persecution started getting worse and worse, first starting with rejection of the Jews all the way down to a mass riot almost in the city, I didn't hold back. Okay, I didn't hold back. I was consistent. I want you to know that. And not only was he consistent, he was Christ-centered. He taught them everything that they needed to know about faith and repentance in, in Jesus Christ. Everything that you need to know. And he said, I did it with passion. Right? There were tears. It was intense. This was very real. And I was committed to this mission. Even though trials came, I didn't try to get around the trials. We pressed on through the trials. And I was bold. I was bold. I, I didn't hold back. I didn't have fear, even though there are times that when you have the kind of ministry that Paul has, which is trying to push people towards Christ, you're going to say things that people are going to get really mad at you about. 
How dare you say that? How dare you confront me on that? How dare you? What are you saying about me? Right? All this stuff's going to come. And Paul's saying, I didn't hold back for fear of a reaction because I don't, I'm not afraid of that. I don't like it, right? I'm sure he didn't like having people mad at him. But he didn't hold back. He didn't have fear. So guys, when I was there, my ministry was a no-fear ministry. Second thing I want you to notice, it was a no-hesitation ministry. He says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Right? Could you, first of all, just picture this. Picture if God told you a portion of your future. And, and it went like this. You got on your knees and you said, God, what do you have in store for me? And God comes back and says, pain. That's what I have in store for you. Pain. Uh, any more descriptions than that, God? No. It's going to be tough. How would you respond? Okay, maybe I shouldn't have prayed that prayer. <laughs> right? God, what's your will? It's going to be tough. It's going to be rough. Uh, pain, misery, probably death. That's all I want to give you for now. Your future's rough. In fact, he says your future's uncertain. I don't know the specifics is what he's saying, but what I do know is it's rough. And whenever God reveals that kind of stuff to you, you're never going to see me again, guys. That's pretty amazing. But what I love about Paul is I, you know, honestly, I, how would you respond? Like, you know, I know how my flesh would respond if God were to say, all right, Steve, you know, the next 12 months of your life is going to be really rough and it's probably going to result in a really painful, miserable death. Okay, if God reveals that, my flesh is going to go, okay, or we could just stay here and raise the family and... <laughs> I could pray a lot and, you know, just give stuff away. And, right? I mean, your flesh should be trying to figure out, how do you navigate around that revelation? How do you navigate around? That's tough words. Yet Paul says, no, I just want to be faithful, man. I want to be faithful. I have no hesitation no matter what happens. I am all in for Jesus. And, and that particular no hesitation, I believe, is what Paul is trying to get the whole church to have. I think that's what his encouragement's always about. Read through his letters. This is what it's about. It's, it's about coming alongside and saying, stay faithful, stay the course, stay the course. Don't worry, man. They might take your life, but they can't. But you, you've, got, you've got an inheritance with God. Don't worry. Justice is coming. Jesus is coming back. Keep your eye on the ball. Don't back away. No hesitation. I think that's his discipleship plan. You know, his discipleship plan was not be all that you can be, find your satisfaction, find your, 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 you know, your own. He's saying, here's a discipleship plan. Be faithful. Be faithful. It's worth it. It's so awesome. It's so great to be part of God's kingdom. Even if you get your head cut off, 
That is so much better than having this world. Be faithful. That's what he's telling these guys. I just want to be faithful. It's what I want. It's what I want. But he keeps going. He's got a ministry of no shame. That's the next negative. Look at verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So as I think about the fact that my future is uncertain, what I want to make sure that you realize is that I'm, I'm leaving here with a clear conscience. I've given you everything. You have everything you need already to, to, to be this way. Right? I mean, if somebody told you that this next 12 months is going to result in your arrest, you're, beat, you're being beaten and, and your head cut off, you might say, God, I'm not prepared for that. And Paul would say, I've given you everything. You're prepared for it. I'm prepared for it. We're ready. You've got it all. I, I didn't shrink back. I have no shame. I'm not walking away going, man, I wish I would have told him this. That's what he's telling you. You have it. And therefore, we go to the next negative. No wolves. No wolves. This is what he ultimately wants. Here's his ultimate charge. Verse 28. Be careful. Or I'm sorry. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, right? You didn't start this church, guys. Jesus did when he died, right? That's what started the church. Kishwaukee Bible Church wasn't started in 1993 by church planters from Grace Church of DuPage. Kishwaukee Bible Church started when Christ died. That's what purchased the church. That's what started this thing. Guys, keep your perspective. It's not about you. Sorry, getting ahead of myself here. I get excited about that passage, okay? I lost my place even. So let's just pick up uh, somewhere in which the Holy Spirit made you an overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Whew, 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. This is a pretty intense farewell. I'm going to die, and Satan's going to attack your church. Let's pray. Right? This is intense. But this is the mission. This is what it means to get out on the edges. And so he says, guys, watch your own walk. But not only that, you're adding a burden when you want to be an elder. You're also saying you'll watch the walk of others. What does that mean to watch the walk? Being on guard is the whole idea of of taking it so seriously. You know, I don't know if you... I've mentioned this in the past, but do you know why uh, officers wear sidearms? Officers, if you see in the military, not police officers, military officers, there's a whole history behind this of a, of, a, of, a, of a captain or a colonel, and he'll wear a little sidearm. And you think, what is a sidearm going to do in a battle, right? Somebody's shooting at you with a machine gun, you're out there with like a 45. But do you know why that was there, the history of the sidearm for officers? It wasn't to kill the enemy. It was to kill your own soldiers. If someone fell asleep on guard duty, kill them. That's the history of the sidearm. We don't practice that in the United States, just so you know. Okay? We just wear the sidearms. But the history of the sidearm was to say, if you don't take being on guard seriously, you are risking the lives of every soldier. Therefore, you don't deserve to live if you fall asleep. You don't deserve to live. We're not going to let you sleep while you risk everyone else's life, and so, boom, you put the bullet in their head. 
Hey, it's a pretty graphic statement, but that's what being on guard means. You're taking this so seriously, you won't fall asleep. You're going to take your own walk seriously, and you're also going to take the walk of the church seriously. Why? There's dangers from the outside, dangers from the inside. One more little story here. As he's talking about these ravenous wolves, again, another old story, but if you remember this time I shared with you when I was driving through Canada one time, going through the mountains, and I saw these sheep crossing over the road. It was pretty cool, all these kind of wild sheep just going across the road. And I'm just sitting there waiting, and, and they're going across. And, you know, you're in, the, in these mo- beautiful mountains, and, and these sheep are going by, and you're just like, wow, this is so great, so beautiful, so incredible, and kind of this moment of worship, and then, because you're just seeing nature and the way God made it all. And then pulling forward, as we're pulling forward, me and this guy I was traveling with, we're going slowly because there was this little cliff area, and we didn't know if any more sheep were going to run out. So we're kind of looking behind this rock, and as we get on the other side of this little cliff rock area, there's a wolf pressed down into the rock. All the sheep are jumping over them. They have no idea there's a wolf there. And you know there's never just one wolf, right? Right? They hunt in packs. That's just the lead wolf. And he's just back there. And I was just like, wow. Animal kingdom moment, right? Like, you know... We had time. I actually don't know if I would have wanted, wanted to have watched that, what was going to take place. But there were some stragglers up top that, you know, probably didn't make it. This is the picture here. Satan hates the church. Deception is his way in. Satan does not walk in and say, hey, worship me. Satan walks in trying to pretend like he's leading you to worship God. So if you're not taking your walk seriously, you'll be fooled by it. He's saying, elders, don't be fooled by this. Because the dangers are not only going to come from the outside, but you might even put guys on your leadership team and you think they're walking with Christ and you'll discover they're not. But if you're not paying attention to your own life, you'll miss that and it could destroy the church. So he says, man, no wolves. Take this seriously. And then the last negative, no greed Look at verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Beautiful statement, right? Commending you to God and commending you to the word of his grace. He'll build you up. He'll he'll give you what you need. And you have an inheritance waiting in him. That's all important because he's going to make this statement in 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Notice that. Or clothes. Right? I mean, coveting clothes is not just our generation, right? He says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. A little side note, this is the only place where we have a statement of Jesus outside of the Gospels. A direct quote that's in this very unique place that isn't really directly quoted anywhere else in, 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 in the Gospels. Very unique moment. There's other close references to that, but this is just a unique moment where Paul is giving you divine revelation here from Jesus. And here's the point. He's saying this. Greed should not be the driving factor. Greed is a, a reality in all of the Christian walk. Greed is one of the things that we're the easiest on, right? 
We know adultery is bad, and we know murder is bad, and all that, but greed is one of those crazy ones that, uh, that we have a higher tolerance for. It's always true throughout the whole scriptures. And, uh, and Paul says, guys, this isn't what this is about. You serving as an elder isn't about your, your greed. It isn't about taking from people. It isn't about your stature. I didn't walk into this place uh, with a lifestyle that I was trying to maintain. I came here to give generously. And men, you need to give generously. It's not about that. So then, let's wrap it up. He says, when he had said these things, he knelt out, they prayed. There's weeping. You can imagine the weeping. This is a pretty intense moment. Verse 38, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. Right? That he's going to die. He knows that he's going to die. And so they bring him to a ship. This is a pretty intense moment. But what do we get from verse 20? Or chapter 20, I mean. What do we get from chapter 20? There's three things I'd like to just... There's a lot in here. And, and I just hit it kind of fast. But I'm just going to give you three things. But hopefully you've got 20 things you got out of, that, that you can pull out of this text. But three things I'd like to point on is I'd like to just start first with this. The, what I want to just simply call the protection of the elders. Leadership shepherds, as you appoint shepherds in the churches, as you're part of this, the current shepherds that are here and the shepherds that, that will come, remember that role of, you know, you're appointing somebody who, who's, who's taking guard over their own life and who has the emotional and spiritual capacity to help guard your spiritual walk. That kind of courage to, to push you, the courage to, to come alongside and help you serve Christ. Right? We don't want to evaluate a leader based on just their, uh, uh, their skills, their ability to dazzle people, to be able to talk. We don't want to appoint leaders who are rich or seem to have everything all together. You're looking for that leader who, who has character and is able to shepherd his own life and has the spiritual maturity to absorb helping you in your walk. That's a big task. It's a t- hard, hard enough task to... to to just shepherd your own heart, let alone absorbing the role of caring for the flock. But that's where the protection, and I want to say the productivity of the church comes from. It's protected from wolves, and it's able to be productive in the mission. So that's key, critical. The second observation I want to make is, is what I, w- I want to move from the protection of the elders to the pri- priority of the next generation. I love the fact that every city, there's a guy. When money needs to go, there's just somebody there. That Paul didn't see ministry as just about him and what he's doing. It was about finding those people, the faithful, skilled people, and be able to say, I want to give it to you. I want to pass this on. The third observation I want to make from the protection and the priority of the next generation, protection of the elders, priority of the next generation, is the place of discipleship. And and I want us to think about this. When we think about the church and you go through the self-study, remember that the point of the church is to exist for God's purposes. Right? That's the key to everything. The church exists for God's purposes. It doesn't exist for our purposes. It's easy for me as a pastor, if I were going into another church, to say, I want a church that does this because I like this, and I want a church that does this, and to suddenly even as a pastor think like a consumer. I want a church that does all these things because that's what I like to do. And I want a pastor at a place that has these kind of staff members and, and da da da. 
No, the purpose of the church is to say it exists to make the name of Christ known and to call disciples into that. And everything's about pulling people into following Jesus. And that's critical. That is the, the, the whole ministry of Paul in a nutshell. To go to the nations and make disciples who would align themselves to the purposes of Christ and thus make more disciples. Who would align themselves to the ministry of Christ and make more disciples. And out of that come the next generation of shepherds and leaders and who will then protect the church and care for the church and, 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 and so that this thing would join and it would be this massive movement. And that's the place of discipleship. We never want to make our goal. How do we get more people in the door? What our goal needs to be, how do we get more disciples out the door? All right? Out the door. How do we get you aligned to the purposes of God? You can see, I think chapter 20 is a pivotal letter, pivotal for our church, one we should be returning to frequently. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you. This is an intense chapter that we have run through faster than in many ways we should have, but thank you that we could see the whole. Thank you, God, for that work. May our church be faithful to that. As we go through a process of examining ourselves, as we go through a process of aligning ourselves, I pray that we'd align ourselves to the way that you've revealed it. I pray, God, that discipleship would be critical in the life of this church. I pray, God, for that next generation of shepherds that, that should come from this place. I pray, God, for the leadership that they would guard their own heart Guard the flock. Be discerning and protect because we believe that Satan's desire is to deceive the church and take it out of effectiveness, to remove the saltiness and the brightness of our light. Lord, may these things be true. And Lord, may we look back 12 months from now and just see how you've established this church to do the purposes for which you've designed it. Because you bought it. You started it at the cross, Lord. And may we just recognize that and walk faithfully in that. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.